We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hello and welcome to Novel Feelings, where two psychologists take a deep dive into your favourite books. I'm Elise, just doing a quick solo intro for today. Today we are very excited to have an interview with Robin Dennison coming up, author of the newly released Blind Spot. About Robin, so Robin Dennison's fiction has appeared in Australian literary journals, including as a runner-up for the Overland VU Short Story Prize. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, where she teaches creative writing. Blind Spot, her first novel was shortlisted for the Tex Prize. A little bit about the book. So, when Dale stumbles into a bedroom at a party and sees a drunk girl being undressed by a group of guys, he backs away and runs. He's pretty drunk himself, but he knows what he saw. Why didn't he stop them? Why did he run? These questions haunt him. He wants to make things right, but he doesn't know how. There's no way he can talk to his dad. His mum walked out months ago, and his best friend Kieran wouldn't understand. Then Max arrives, Dale's cousin. She's older, smart, cool, with her own perspective on Dale's problem and her own problems too. Thank you so much to Tex Publishing for linking us together for this interview. Uh, Just a quick couple of notes before we get started. So first of all, we recorded this one in person in a recording studio, which is very exciting for us, but unfortunately we did have some tech issues and the audio quality is a little bit different to normal. I've done my best, of course, to work around this with editing, but we might sound a little different, so apologies for that. And then our usual disclaimers. So first of all, we're trained psychologists, but this podcast should never be taken as direct therapeutic advice. The first half of this interview is spoiler-free, but the second half does contain some spoilers. And a couple of content notes for today. So some of the topics that come up in this interview include sexual assault and trauma, alcohol and cannabis use, depression, eating disorders, including broad discussions of food restriction and other disordered eating behaviours, as well as treatment, and family separation. All right, so now over to our interview with Robin. So, Robin, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you going? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, We are actually recording today uh, in person, which is extremely rare for us. So thank you so much, Robin, for making your way here. Um, I am looking forward to this interview and to learning a little bit more about Blindspot. I'm looking forward to it too. (laughs) Blindspot deals with some very important topics, but the main one is that it's about people who witness or otherwise know about sexual assault but do nothing about it. Why did you decide to write a book about this topic? I don't know that I ever did per se consciously decide to write a novel about that, although it did start with this image or idea of someone kind of stumbling into witnessing something and then having the immediate gut reaction of just backing away and not doing anything um which is quite a powerful scene I will say like a powerful image as well and I can see why that might prompt so much story to come out of it yeah it was it was also quite a while ago now I did start the novel in like 2013 I think oh wow so and at the time I had already had the idea but then, and then I started working on a minor thesis here at Melbourne Uni um, that was about the representation of sexual violence in young adult fiction. Mm. And 
So even while I'd already kind of had the idea and maybe I'd started working on it, I don't think I would have seen it through to, to fruition without that, that thesis and without doing that research. Mm. That sounds like really interesting research. Yeah, what was that like? Yeah, it was great. I analysed um, Kirsty Egar's 2009 novel, Raw Blue. I don't know if either of you have read it. It's a great Australian YA novel. Yeah, my, my thesis was actually about narrative tense, like present tense and first-person narration. Oh, interesting. And the idea of like uh, victim narratives versus survivor narratives. Mm. But And, yes, the, the an excerpt from an early draft of what would become Blind Spot was the creative component of that thesis. Mm. On that topic about choosing to write about a bystander rather than about a victim or survivor themselves, like I said, I don't think it was conscious, but I'm, I don't know, I'm aware that it's like a delicate terrain. Yeah. It's a perspective that I don't think I've really read from before, which was interesting because I've definitely read quite a bit of survivor literature and I've even read perpetrator mm-hmm. perspectives as well. Not that the novels I've read have been condoning that but um, from that perspective, but I don't think I've ever read um, a witness's perspective. Yeah, I think, and maybe this was more true at the time that I started the novel, but it, the social discourses, I feel like, it's maybe more acceptable now to have written it than it was at the time that I started it, where we really were having more conversations about people being able to tell their own stories. And so I was acutely aware of the risks of kind of it being interpreted or coming across as kind of like, yeah, like like boy becomes yeah, self-actualized yeah. by oh, violence yeah. done to a woman. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think it comes across like that at all. <laughs> I suppose I also wonder if we're now at a time where we can accept that moral complexity, I suppose, that you know, Dale's not immediately label a villain. Like mm. he's not he's obviously done the wrong thing and we mm. all have that gut feeling of like, well, of course I would have said something in that moment. Mm-hmm. But maybe we're now ready for this narrative where, well, what if you wouldn't actually do that in the moment. Does mm-hmm. that make you a horrible person? Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't mean yes, it makes you a horrible person. <laughs> yes, I think, I think we are more maybe because there have been so many stories um, from like victims and survivors' perspectives that it's it's more acceptable now to kind of broaden that, that lens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, and it definitely partly came from being interested in shared responsibility and ideas about like passivity and inaction and and then also like shame and mm-hmm. atonement if yeah. that's possible and those are definitely all topics that we're going to be covering through the interview mm-hmm. we started to touch on this but considering Dale's moral transgression before the start of the novel it would have been pretty easy for him to be written as an unlikable character um but I know as a reader myself, I was able to feel sympathy for him without condoning his actions. How did you approach writing him with this kind of complexity? That was definitely the trickiest part of yeah. writing the novel and I think is the main reason why it took so long to write and went through so many different drafts because it is 
it's yeah it's not meant to be ambiguous whether he did the right the wrong thing or not like as you've already said it's it's clear that he should have done something mm-hmm. and so then trying to balance that with you know j- just be- just because you've done something wrong or you failed to do something when you should have done something does that make you completely irredeemable mm-hmm. and i yeah i think a lot of it came down to trying to characterize dale with complexity in the sense of him being quite a passive person and a person who mm-hmm. feels like they don't have control mm-hmm. over the the situations they find themselves in and having that recur throughout the narrative i think hopefully gives a sense of a little bit of insight into where these where this behavior kind of came from where mm-hmm. yeah Dale's dealing with a lot of guilt and shame as a result of the, his inaction um, after witnessing the sexual assault, which then grow into self-loathing as the novel progresses. How would you describe his mental health throughout the novel? Uh, quite poor, yeah. um, if that's not uh, over, overly simplifying or, or a bit um, bad to say. But as I already said, he's, he struggles with feeling out of control and I think he struggles to see himself as someone who can change anything Mm -hmm. and he struggles to see himself as like an agent rather than I think he even comes close to saying this at one point like as you know someone who things happen to Mm. powerlessness Mm. and I think part of that is because of what's happened earlier this year where his parents have split up unexpectedly with his mother leaving um but yes, in terms of his mental health, he's definitely a very, very anxious, quite depressive person prone to shame. And I think his main way of seeing himself as compared to others is through like feeling like he's not good enough. Um, and like a lot of that is drawn from my own experiences with anxiety and depression. And I think there's like one part of the novel, which is probably the only part that I that I could say is like directly lifted from like how I feel mm-hmm. about myself or or words that I would use to characterize myself, where he's thinking about how other people see him. He phrases it around imagining that everyone is always watching him and judging him and finding him lacking. Mm-hmm. And that is pretty much like something I think I once said to my therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes. Definitely some mental health struggles for Dale, and thankfully for me, a lot of that stuff is from past experiences and not mm. and not current. Like I said, it took a long time to write the novel, but I suppose I was interested in him self-medicating in a way. You wouldn't put it that way, but the drinking was quite obvious as well. Mm. It probably also stood out because of his age to me. And just me thinking, why is his dad letting him do this? <laughs> as uh, yeah. we, we were talking about this afterwards, of as people who grew up with strict parents, how the I <laughs> and I see this all the time in TV shows where you know the kids and teenagers are just like out partying, just like oh yeah, I'll be back at some point, blah blah blah. And I'm just like, logistically, I could have never done that as a teenager. <laughs> my parents, not only were my parents had never let me, but it's just like logistics of getting to and from all these places, someone who grew up in a country that where everyone is very spread out and like there's no opportunities for partying, <laughs> not really. So it's, just, it's very different yeah. um, reading about a community like Dale's and his 
relationship with drugs and alcohol as someone that was pretty sheltered from that. Yeah, and I suppose I should add, you know, I didn't grow up in Australia, so that drinking culture is very different from what I experienced growing up. And I actually was very interested in Dale's parents as characters as well because they, you can see their actions are driven by their own struggles, I suppose. But again, I will stop saying anything spoilery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... I hadn't really thought about the way that his dad lets him drink because his dad lets him drink kind of only in moderation. I I guess I would just come back to like Dale is 17. Mm. Um, he's in his second to last year of high school. I mean, Dale doesn't have a healthy relationship with alcohol, but mm. it probably does reflect my own perspective on how maybe parents can try to start teenagers off on a healthier relationship yeah. with alcohol in that it's yeah. like it's not – if you make something forbidden, yeah. that you're more likely to go and do it. Yeah. And it's like I'd prefer you to do it in my house mm-hmm. where I can see you where you're not going to be driving. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I agree with that 100%. In terms yeah. just just in terms yeah. of talking about his dad's approach. Yeah. But his dad is also a fairly hands-off parent, mm. which, you know, is. Yeah. And I suppose we're catching him at a period where he's probably going through things that we're not seeing because we're, following Dale's perspective. So he's coping with this separation himself, potentially, or this life transition from one stage to another. And maybe he's just struggling to like, what spoilery to say or not. (laughs) Um, I'm not at all implying that he's a bad dad, I suppose. It's just like, as we're in Dale's perspective and seeing him like, sneak whiskey and you know things that his dad probably would say no to but I'm like I think it's just that reaction that came up for me just not again not a judgment necessarily on his choices in terms of parenting and things like that but I did it it is true I think that he's not a perfect dad and I think that's fine sometimes Mm -hmm. in YA not always, but yeah. sometimes I do kind of find that the parents are either like really, really terrible mm. and really neglectful or abusive yeah. or they're like basically perfect. Yeah. And um, I think it it was important to me to kind of have um, someone who's fundamentally I think a good parent and doing their best, but mm. they're far from like they're not going to win any parenting awards that don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And um, speaking of Dale and his father, uh, throughout the novel, they're supporting uh, cousin Max through her recovery from an eating disorder. Um, we meet Max at the start of the novel as she as she moves in, and we gradually get more of her story as we go along. Um, I do want to ask a little bit more about her in the spoiler section, but just off the top of our heads, um, there were a few specific things that came up, a few specific family techniques that we identified when it comes to families supporting someone with an eating disorder, like um, having a meal plan and supporting them with a meal plan, trying not to comment on weight or appearances and so on. I'm just wondering if you were drawing from any particular treatment approaches or family approaches in this instance. Not really beyond what I understand to be the fairly dominant way that these Mm -hmm. kinds of eating disorders are dealt with in this kind of treatment where, yes, like don't talk about how they look Mm. and it is kind of seen as like a a family, a shared kind of responsibility of like we're Mm. all going to sit down and and have a meal. Um, 
I mean, I did a lot of research for the eating disorder component of the novel, but then I think some of it also is 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 just a nice way to have those characters all interact, like having a family. I didn't grow up in a house where we had family meals very often, um, mostly because my sister and I did so much ballet that we didn't get home until like eight thirty at night. But um, yeah. <laughs> I was asking because what you what you included in the novel was very much making me think of family based treatment, which is like the dominant approach for adolescents who are experiencing anorexia or I think sometimes bulimia do you have too. So a lot of it was like very closely aligned with my understanding of that. I've never delivered that or supported a family through it. So I don't have that kind of first hand treatment experience, nor do I have like lived experience or caring experience. But um, I was curious as like Max is sort of on the older end of that and I've known some clients who have stopped FBT as soon as they turn 18 because they hate it so much and they refuse to participate anymore. So I was curious about uh, Max's experience of Dale and his father um, supporting her in that way. Um, without going into spoilers, how how would you say that impacted on Max, um, having that kind of family-based support at home? I don't think it's something that's new to her, Um, but, of course, Dale and his father, they're new to her, but um, I, you know, I'm I'm aware that Max's narrative, and maybe this is not answering the question, but I'm aware that Max's narrative is a fairly, is probably the, resembles like the dominant narrative that we've been exposed to about eating disorders in women in adolescence in like western culture in that she's underweight and she's malnourished to the point where she needs medical intervention and her like recovery is medicalized it was important to me that she not be that classic kind of anorexic figure of the perfectionist or like Mm -hmm. the high achieving student Mm -hmm. or like the type a kind of um person she is kind of messy and kind of drifting she's actually an adult so she doesn't really need she's not like she could refuse this this treatment and yeah without getting without getting spoilery it's unclear to what extent she's fully on board with the process and to what extent she's going through the motions Mm. I imagine it would have been you know regardless of how dedicated or how you know committed she was to her recovery at the start, I imagine you know, we, we see it being hard on her, right? Like we see her struggling to get through meals. We see her you know, disconnected from others and her mental health isn't greatest out of the novel either. And But we know that quite explicitly in the narrative that you know, that kind of family-based support is really difficult, especially when people are supervising you or having you know, some sort of control over your meals, um, it can be very difficult to go along with that um, when your instinct is telling you to not do that. Yeah, and I think that Dale and his dad are also kind of not sure what they're doing. Yeah. Um, it, it, it doesn't sound like I'm, I'm speaking as if I wasn't the person who wrote the novel. <laughs> it doesn't sound like they ever had like a medical handover with any – or even a hand handover, quote unquote, with her mum. She was just like, she needs a break. Here you go. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of more like this has been the norm in our house for so long because Max has been on this kind of hamster wheel of mm. 
escalating recovery attempts deterioration, mm-hmm. escalating recovery attempts deterioration for so long that this is just the way we do things. She has a meal plan. We try to get her to stick to it. Like there is that kind of infantilizing, almost kind of conflict heavy and again kind of stereotypical um vibe of like she's she's not always cooperative um which I don't think is the best way to 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 talk about these things or think about these things but I think it is something that happens or certainly was like a big part of the conversations when I was growing up and so I guess when she comes it is kind of like at one point I think she says you know um everyone just needed a break like we just needed a new context mm-hmm. but the and the pattern I think is just there of like we have to have family meals and this is what Max is allowed to do and this is what she's not allowed to do I guess just came with the territory I think one of the one of the motivations to have Max's narrative be what it is, be what it is is that I am quite interested in um disordered eating and I don't tend to find that many representations of it in fiction Mm. um it's interesting because I think unfortunately disordered eating is so prevalent and is a, Mm. a, a an issue that so many people struggle with but it's it's kind of curious that it doesn't pop up a little bit more in in fiction I think eating disorder well any mental health disorder really you can't package easily into a narrative yeah I I think there's definitely been a lot more representation of anorexia than other mm. eating disorders too mm. um, a little bit more happening with bulimia and injury disorder mm. these days but yeah not as much yeah and that's what I am kind of referring to when I say like I'm aware that sh- that this is a kind of a normative nar- it's like already the dominant narrative and so in a way you're kind of reinforcing that by um because I do think in terms of how prevalent these things are in the real world anorexia is probably overrepresented in fiction and even memoir um whereas something like bulimia binge eating disorder or like you know do they still say eating disorder not otherwise specified or have they replaced uh, like that term Osfed now other specified feeding and eating disorder which is a ridiculous name and like Osfed. um Ed, Ed, i think most people still say Ednos. yeah <laughs> um that's by far like the most oh, yeah. common and like now like what you might call orthorexia or do they still call that something or did they rename that too i'm is, showing my age no orthorexia is not technically a diagnosis mm, but okay. like it's a real thing. It's just not in the, the diagnostic manual. So, yeah, I think orthorexia is way more common than the di- diagnosable eating disorders because it's, I guess, it's technically subclinical, um, but it can be just as damaging as other eating disorders. So, yeah, shocking. Yeah, I, f- I definitely feel like most of the people I know, including myself, who have struggled with disordered eating in their lives, it's not necessarily been through something that would be diagnosable yeah. as anything other than Ednos or Osfed. Um, uh, but, yeah, it doesn't pop up that often as a character trait, like a, as a kind of like something that a, a character is struggling with or something that they are something that their dilemmas are explored through the motif of in Mm. in fiction, whereas other mental health issues or substance abuse issues I feel like pop up a bit more often. But maybe that's my own bias where I I want to see more complex, fictionalised explorations of those kinds of issues. And so I'm, like, noticing that it's not there and seeking it out. Yeah. Yeah. So we're probably 
getting to the point where we can't really say much more about Blind Spot without going into spoilers, but we do have a couple of wrap-up questions before we head into spoiler territory or full-on spoiler territory anyway. Yeah, so not necessarily related to Blind Spot, but can you tell us a bit about your PhD? What are you researching? My PhD research is about uh, queer girls as main characters in Australian realist YA. So um, that can be any form of queerness, however subtle. Um, and I'm only looking at realist text, so not not genre, like, you know, just for scope. Like it just wasn't, it's just, it wasn't feasible to include everything. So the novels that fit yeah. that scope um, are I think there's about 37, maybe 38 of them um, published between 1987 and 2022. And uh, it feels like both a lot and not enough. It's a lot to talk about in a thesis, but it doesn't seem like that many in the grand scheme of how many books have been published at that time. Exactly, yeah. And it, it, it is a lot of books to talk about and I do kind of only talk about a few as primary texts that I analyse yeah. in detail but the thesis draft as it is, we'll see what my review panel says in a few weeks' time at my, my three-and-a-half-year review mm-hmm. but um, the draft at the moment does have one very long chapter that is kind of like like an overview of the entire corpus and mm-hmm. does like a plot summary Um of every single novel charting kind of the ideologies about identity, like sexual identity, that, that are being engaged with um, by the novels. Something that I think is interesting is that I think there's this dominant narrative about queer YA that it that early novels were kind of all very tragic, all about mm-hmm. suffering, all about death and bigotry. And that's just not really true in this corpus of texts, mm. partly because I think um, a lot of those narratives actually come from the US where there was a longer history of earlier novels in the 60s and 70s, mm. whereas you don't really see, like, my corpus only starts in 1987, mm. partly because, you know, there's a lot, I'm not talking about male characters, I'm only talking mm. about female characters. But I feel like a re- one of the, res- like, a result of that narrative has been a rise in like optimism and wholesomeness Mm. that I'm not necessarily, um, how to say this, a rise in optimism or wholesomeness that I think is interesting to talk about. Yeah, I've seen literature... I see literary criticism going both ways. Like we need more positive, optimistic stories, but... Then people saying like, but that's not the reality for so many people. So there is still a place for you know, mm-hmm. tragic nuanced, or sad yeah. or nuanced yeah. stories too. Yeah. yeah, perhaps this does lead into our final non-spoiler question, uh, which is something we ask everybody we interview. But do you have any authors or books that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Sounds like you've been doing a lot of reading, mm-hmm. of course, but uh, regardless of whether or not they are relating to your PhD. I mean, from the PhD corpus, the the author that I'm most preoccupied with that I, like, want to feverishly press in books <laughs> of into other people's hands is Joanne Horneman, who I don't know if either of you are already familiar, no. um, wrote, wrote a number of books in the, the 90s and the noughts and then kind of last published a book in 2010, um, all of which are just, like, gorgeously written 
very very nuanced depictions of of mostly girls um, and women's experiences. Another writer who I'm obsessed with, whose work I love, but who I don't kind of understand why they're categorised as YA, is Margot Lanigan. Um, I think I've read something about her. Is it Tender Morsels? No. Is that the one? um, There was a book about mermaids. Sea Hearts? Yes. I started reading that. And, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I'm not sure this is YA. (laughs) (laughs) And Sea Hearts, I think, is more resembles YA than Tender Morsels. Her other novel, well, she did publish two realist realist, um, YA novels in the 90s, but they're very hard to find now. Um, And they're quite different to her later two novels. She's most famous for her short story collections. But I think it's really interesting. She's she's an amazing writer and I, I love her books, but she's also an interesting figure to ponder the question of what YA is and what we mean by it. And if you publish something as YA, does that then mean that whatever you write next is going to be shoehorned mm. into YA, yeah. however mysteriously it fits? Yes. Uh, my YA reading has mostly, I mostly read Australian YA and some of my favourites are Vicky Wakefield and Leanne Hall and Claire Zorn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Do I just list novels I love? <laughs> we can end it there in <laughs> a Zuma. Yeah. Okay. Put some links in the show notes. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Let's dive into the spoiler questions. This will be fun. Yeah, we've been <laughs> skirting around them yeah. for long enough, so probably time for us to... Mm. get into the juicy stuff the main topic that we touched on earlier is Dale's passivity and this is something he struggles with throughout the novel in terms of knowing when to intervene what to do and ultimately how to make amends this is the case for witnessing Chloe's assault but also with failing to recognize Max's decline can you comment on these parallels yeah I mean it was definitely intentional. I think on a just on a practical uh, level, I knew that the novel needed a subplot, and I, um, I mean, it probably didn't need, but I wanted it to have like a, a prominent, complex female character because I knew early on that Chloe wasn't going to be a, a main character. I think one thing that I wanted to explore through that parallel was that Dale really is kind of befuddled and and finds Max's illness so alienating. And to me, that was an, a way of engaging with what I see as being quite like gendered discourses around eating issues and body image and like diet culture. I remember being, when I was young, being struck and hopefully this has changed maybe it's changed but Mm. being struck by how much no matter how many red flags there were often young men would be completely oblivious Mm. to women's and girls struggles with eating disorders or body image Mm. as much as Dale knows there's something to be concerned about it's he kind of it's never really occurred to him before that this can be a problem for people and he's not really sure what to do, which I think is part of what we see him struggle with in terms of when is the right time to intervene. Here I am again. Yeah. And as we flagged before, there's no we, we don't get any sort of handover as well. There's no education that they receive for when to like what is what are the red flags and when do you need to act on them? They're just mm. are kind of left to 
their own devices about what to do. So, you know, and that's that's not yeah. I guess at that family level, it's not Dale's fault for not knowing. But yeah, there's definitely that as well. That men are just not educated mm. or you know, eating issues and body image issues are not discussed with them. Or if they are, they're discussed in a different way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, like, I don't want to blame Dale. Dale's seventeen. You know, he's not the <laughs> he's not the adult responsible for Max's well-being. But mm. we, we do see his feelings of more intense or, you know, continuing to build on the guilt guilt and the shame that he's really struggling with throughout the novel. Yeah. And I suppose for me that the parallels make me think about how, again, that he's not this horrible person that would just Mm. walk away from an awful thing that he's witnessing. It's just that, you know, in in Chloe's case, it was that flight response. And then he could not work out what to do about that guilt and that shame. And in Max's response, it's almost, he can see all the signs, but not putting it, put, putting them together. And, and neither does not, his dad either. Yeah, so, and it's, yeah. yeah, there's nothing, there's no maliciousness in either of those incidents. But, you know, he, he could have been more assertive. And which is yeah. you know, just as a character flaw, and yeah. it's not a moral failing, I suppose, to that mm. sense. And, and Max doesn't make it easy for him. The mm. times that he does kind of say, okay, well, we really need to tell someone about this, like mm. you just passed out or, yeah. or whatever, she's quite um, aggressive with yeah. him and like weaponizes the, the thing with Chloe, mm. um, which it. Yeah, so I guess it is a dilemma and his loyalty is, and I think this partly reflects his age, like he is 17, mm. his loyalty is to Max and he think, I think he thinks he's doing the right thing by yeah. doing what she wants him to do, mm. even though the right thing to do would probably be to like call her doctor or at least her mum yeah. or at least tell his dad. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not actually sure what the right thing to do is because, you know, Max is an adult mm. and I think sometimes like with a lot of mental health issues or substance use issues, you know, Max is someone who needs to be, who needs to be like ready to try to recover mm-hmm. and who needs to be wanting that otherwise. And, you know, she's just not there. So then I'm not sure if Dale did had done something, would it have changed anything? Maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Max, um, we don't really get a, clear sense in in the novel around the early development of her eating disorder but of course we do see its impact and the early stages of her recovery process i'm wondering at in your minds um how did her eating disorder develop over time was there a clear trigger there definitely wasn't a clear trigger like i already said i I really didn't want Max to be the kind of classic narrative of the perfectionist who in striving for perfection, you know, kind of develops anorexia. And I also didn't want her to be someone who like when confronted with puberty was like, oh, I can't, you know, which is another kind of narrative. Um, I think she tells Dale about a, a physical sickness that she had that was a bit mysterious in origin that involved yeah. being quite sick and losing quite a lot of weight. And I think it, it is open to the reader to fill in the blanks of what the in-between years have, have mm-hmm. looked like. I guess I'm drawn to not giving a clear 
narrative. And that's something. Because, <laughs> yeah, because I think that's how those things happen. Like, there's never just one answer to explain where things that we struggle with have come from. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I'll, that's what I like. One of the things that I like the most about the novel is that this hint to like, the bigger picture. Like, we get a glimpse of Max's mum. And I think there was a line about how Max's mom and Dill's dad haven't spoken before this and there was some sort of fallout. Um, and I like that. Oh, I want to know more about that. But I like it being just sort of there as context clues in a way. And I also like um, Dale's parents' divorce, for example. We get glimpses of what they both went through in that marriage and separation. But... Again, if this being Dale's story, we don't see the whole picture of what happened, but I like that this idea that, you know, these side characters have their own full lives apart from what Dale can see. He doesn't always get the whole of it, but we as the reader can you know, grasp, oh, well, you know, his mom's not terrible. She's just trying to make choices for herself, for example. Um, not that Dale feels that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think not having a clear narrative with Max's story as well works really well. Thank you. Yeah, and I mean that's true in life, isn't it? Like everyone has entire complex full lives and pasts and that we can't see. And I think that fiction feels most satisfying when you get that sense as well. So thank you. Nice. Um we found the relationship between Dale and Max quite touching as well. How would you describe the progression of their relationship throughout the book, including towards the end while Max is in hospital? I think that early on Dale is really quite intimidated by her and mm-hmm. and he also looks up to her quite a lot, maybe inexplicably, um, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very fond of her as a character, so, you know, mm-hmm. although I'm not sure she's... Uh, they're quite oppositional in their personalities. He's very passive. He's very shy um, and she's outgoing and seems at least on the outside as self-assured and she kind of says things that other people wouldn't necessarily say and she just kind of at least gives the impression of being like unapologetically herself and I think he really admires that but is also intimidated by it and he, he wants her to like him but then I think over the course of the novel he does start to realise that, you know, Max needs him as much as he kind of needs her or is leaning on on him or wanting to lean on him. And I think they do end up in a more honest place Mm -hmm. and their relationship kind of equalises out a little little Mm bit. Yeah, I do like that moment towards the end where he visits her in in the hospital and she wants... Was it drugs from him? Yeah, I think she asks for weed. Is it weed? But what she gets is actually alcohol. Yeah, I always get confused. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But then he was trying to do the right thing by saying no to her. And then she turned quite cool towards him in that moment. Much as all. Yeah. So I thought it's it's a nice contrast with earlier where, where Dale will, like, you know, what you spoke about before. So he thought the right thing was to go along with whatever she wanted. And because she he cares about her like that, she also, he also doesn't want to hurt her in that sense. But by that stage, he understands that doing the right thing 
is sometimes denying her what she wants. And even though he, she lashes out in that way, he still stands by that, which I think mm-hmm. is quite a nice relationship and character progression. Yeah, she's definitely flawed, as yeah. all of us yeah. are. And she she does manipulate him, or try to. Um, and I think, you know, obviously she's in a really difficult situation and she's obviously struggling with things and she's trying to make the situation she's in tolerable. Yeah. We've spoken a little bit about Dale's passivity and how that's such a driving force for Possibly being a driving force sounds weird, doesn't it? <laughs> how it's such an integral character trait for him and the events of the novel. And I guess that's a bit of a sign of him taking some more agency, willing to say no and doing the right thing, um, even though it might be uncomfortable in that moment. And there is that parallel with the, the Chloe storyline, of course, too, where he is trying to make amends for what happened. Um I can't remember the line, but there was a line somewhere at some point. It was like, um, you can't change what happened, but you can do what you can to make it right. And I thought that was really, you know, it illustrates a nice character progression for Dale too as, it, as the novel goes on. Yeah. Hopefully it's not too, like, um, you know, please notice that this character has changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're being asked to do something and this time they're going to say no. But, um, I mean, we do all change and grow and we do learn, hopefully, learn from mistakes that we make or we we respond to a situation in one way and it goes badly or we realise that that's not how we want to respond yeah. and we actually change the behaviour. Um, they're quite small moments, but yes. Well, those small moments are powerful. So how would you describe our main character's headspaces by the end of the novel? That's such a difficult question. I don't really know. Um, I am not a fan of happy or neatly resolved endings Mm. and I, I think it's clear that he has come to some kind of acceptance although there is the unresolved like we don't actually follow to a a resolution the chloe situation Uh, it's it's we get a hint that something might happen but we don't know as readers yeah yes so we're not entirely sure what chloe means when she says that she might pass his number on and we're not sure if she's going to actually do it mm-hmm. i know what i think yeah. but you know it's open to interpretation mm-hmm. um but beyond that being unresolved i do feel like we leave him in a in a fairly calm place where he is kind of accepting what's happened and looking forward looking to the future with maybe something a bit more optimistic than what he than than the dale of the beginning of the novel might have Mm. but other but you know people have commented that the ending is quite melancholic or unresolved so i'm i'm interested in you know like i i wrote it i can't get out from inside (laughs) so it's always interesting to yeah yeah Unresolved is probably not the word that I would use. It feels like he's grown up, but it, it's not one of those books where something like sexual assault is dramatic in that narrative sense, but his growth is quiet, I would say. Like it's a lot 
a lot of it is quite internalized, like we are in his head a lot mm. of the time. So I can feel that he has grown up because of these small moments that happen where he makes slightly different choices. So there was that thing about how, you know, don't expect Chloe to forgive you because this is not about you, it's about her. So you know, it feels almost like he's a side character in Chloe's story, but we're following him for now sort of thing. So, or even think, a side character in Max's story. Yeah. He, <laughs> he has this kind of side character, important side character energy. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. what makes like it interesting. Passive, yeah. passive side character energy. Yeah, I like that. I actually really like that no, way it's a, about him. Yeah, as and like I don't a, mean that in a mean way no, by any no, means. Yeah. I just think it's really, yeah, it's, it's a good perspective that we don't get all the time. It's reflective. Reflective is the word I was looking for. Yeah. I mean, that's the tone of the novel for me. So when we get to the end, yes, there's no happy ending because there can't really be a happy ending to all the plots that are happening. You know, there's it will go on and he is still growing up as well. So I feel like it feels like a glimpse of this section of his life and we don't necessarily you know, need to keep going because this is the part of his growth that the story was telling and I feel like you know we see him move from a point where he's you know at the start of the novel he his reflex in a challenging moment and witnessing something traumatic is to run away not to do something and again it's not a choice it's just what happened I feel like the Dale at the end of the novel might not make the same you know, have the same reflex in the moment. Um, mm. We don't know that. And the reality is most of us don't know what we would do if we were in that situation. Um, we all want to say that we would do something, but we don't actually know if that's the case. Mm. So, yeah, I feel like he's in a better place. Yeah, I think he's in a better place. Mm, I think yeah. my instinct is always to make this is terrible, but always to make characters miserable yeah. and, you know, <laughs> My instinct is to is to leave it even less resolved than yeah. it is. But I think, um, you know, it, it felt right to give that little bit of that hopefulness or that sense of he has changed and maybe he would make a different choice now. And also, you know, like he's going to have to live with this for the rest of his life. Like he's not yeah. going to yeah. forget about it yeah. and we don't know what's going to happen to Max. Mm. Um Although in an earlier draft it was much more, not much more, but I would say noticeably more kind of implied that mm-hmm. her struggles were going to continue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, of, of course, we don't get resolution around Chloe as well, mm-hmm. but, yeah, again, just keeping in mind that <laughs> Dale's mental health is not Chloe's responsibility, mm-hmm. um, so it's not up to Chloe you know, her decision is her decision and Dale is not, you know, not the most integral part of whatever she decides to do. I guess the sense that they've all grown in some way, which I think is a nice way to finish this, the narrative. Yeah. I mean, we're all always growing, hopefully, aren't we? Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that one of the more obvious examples of Dale having changed or grown in terms of how he confronts difficult situations is when Brent breaks up with him. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, his handles are quite well. Like, good yeah. for him. 
Yeah. Especially at 17. I did not have that emotional maturity <laughs> when dealing with heartache yeah. when I was that age. Yeah, we never actually discussed that, but I really no. like that that doesn't have that happy ending as well, even though for a while it looked quite well, it can be a healthy relationship for what it was, but not last forever because they were at different stages of life. You can tell that I hate a rom-com. No, I yeah. don't. <laughs> but you can tell that I'm not a rom-com writer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is it healthy? I don't know. Yeah. Brent's so. definitely, like, annoyingly well-adjusted. Yeah. But I don't know that they have a healthy relationship. I suppose it, I don't think it was unhealthy. Yeah. It's not toxic in any way. Which, That's true. you know, we would... Yeah. Not but like, is the yeah. just because something isn't unhealthy doesn't mean it's meant healthy. to be. Like, yeah. it's somewhere in the yeah, it's somewhere in the middle. Mm. I think. Yeah, like they don't. Yeah. He served some emotional support. Yeah, mm. I know he was a distraction to Dale. It's probably unhealthy in the sense that Dale was very anxious about the whole thing and maybe wasn't fully being himself. Mm. And, like maybe he wasn't in the right mindset yeah, for that it wasn't relationship. Him. And, yeah, Brent was – it's nice having a very well-adjusted <laughs> character, you know, in a book where everyone is struggling with something that's happened to them. But, but I do um, think that going back to if their relationship is healthy or not, there's some fairly significant lack of communication. That's true, um, yeah. It seems like they kind of yeah get go backwards a little bit. Um, I do which was also important to me to not have it be like, a, okay, well, now we're boyfriends and now we're, like, emotionally intimate in a way that is clearly discussed and now we're monogamous and we're not going to, you know, they just kind of don't talk about things. Um, anyway. Yeah. I just wanted to thank you once again um, for coming on the show. We are at the end of our questions for today, um, but this has been such a wonderful discussion and... We love our author interviews, so it's always great to to go in depth and to indulge our curious psychology minds about this stuff. So thank you so much, Roman, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Awesome. Thank you. And that wraps us up for today. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to check out our show notes on novelfeelings.com. We'll include links to the books that Robin has recommended, as well as her website and social media. If you like us, please remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, those reviews really help other people find the show, so we really appreciate it. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, The Storygraph, and Goodreads via novel underscore feelings. And also check out Priscilla's bookstagram over on at Paved with Books with an extra S. Thank you so much for listening. See you later.